The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 9 and 10. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without payment, give without payment. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for laborers deserve their food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is worthy and stay there until you leave. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. See, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings because of me, as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I tell you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes." The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection.
Gracious God, we ask that you meet us now in this room, however we find ourselves this day, that you would convince us that you have arranged this moment. You have something you want us to hear. Convince us that we are seen by you in all of our imperfections, in all of our ways in which we are getting it and not getting it. However the, we find ourselves in the room this morning, give us grace, we pray, to believe that you love us and all of our contradiction and come to us always with healing and with care. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how your morning started, but mine was interesting. On the way here in the Uber that I've taken a thousand times, I simply said to the driver, you want to take a right here on, on Geary instead of going up to Euclid. And he was triggered. Let's just put it that way. He read me the riot act for simply saying, take a right on Geary. He said, you're not going to save any time by doing that. He gave me his entire reasoning. You think you're just, you're going to save more than one minute. Safety is the most important thing. And I was like, yes, safety. Okay. Do as you will. Driver's choice. My wife and I have this running thing that when I'm driving somewhere, she wants to tell me the way to get there, the best way. And I look at her and I go, driver's choice. And when I do it to her, she says the same thing to me. It was disruptive. We don't like to be disrupted. I was disrupted. I had, I had an expectation of what this drive to church was supposed to look like. I've done it a million times. And I find myself literally the target of this person's raging anger because I said, take a ride on Geary. And he wanted to go down to Euclid. I'm like, fine, take Euclid. And then he takes a ride on Geary. I can't please this person. <laughs> I don't know what to do with him. So I just sat quietly. Said, you have a good day now, you hear? When I got out. Disruptions. Messing with the status quo. It's one of Jesus' favorite things to do. I remember my first uh, interview to being a youth pastor. Uh, it was back in the late 80s. So a large church in the south. And um, I remember like yesterday when one of the men looked at me and said, are you on a crusade? And I said, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Am I on a crusade? And then he said, forgive it how offensive this will be, but he said, you're not going to go try to go get the colored kids and bring them to this church. I know. I'm sorry. It's horrible. And take our kids to their church. And I'm sitting there, and the thing, the only reason I didn't get up and leave the room is in my peripheral vision, which had been enhanced by me playing quarterback for all those years, but I digress. In my peripheral vision, I saw every head in the room go like this. Just in embarrassment. And what was that person worried about? Besides the fact that they have a lot of interior work still to do on their own racism. That I was going to come in and be an agitator. I was going to disrupt his status quo. I don't like it. He didn't like it. And it's the very thing Jesus did all the time. It's what got him put on a cross. Disrupting the status quo. And I'm bringing that up because I want you to understand that when Jesus gets to the part here that we've read today 
about looking on crowds and having compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, it has a context. And it has been quite the context. Because throughout chapter 8 and throughout chapter 9, Jesus was doing everything that this series is about that we've been in, that we're wrapping up today. Longer tables, shorter walls. Jesus is breaking down barriers left and right all the time, and people don't like it. We go back to chapter 8. He starts with healing lepers. These were social outcasts, a direct challenge, actually on the temple authorities who had jurisdiction over them. He heals a centurion's son, um, an, an ethnic outcast, the first indication that Gentiles will be included in the work and the movement of Jesus. Then a woman considered inferior. Then in chapter 9, a lame man telling him to take heart. Dreaded tax collectors were next. I mean, there was no person that Jesus would not reach out to with compassion. He said of the tax collector, he needs a physician, a physician of the soul. We might say that he actually breaks down barriers with the rich because a leader in the synagogue comes to them and says, my daughter is dying, please come help. A common tragedy in Jesus' day where half the kids basically died before they reached the age of five. And this person is humbled, um, falls to the feet of Jesus. You know, in the midst of that, a woman, again, this time, right in the midst of all of that, he, he basically tells the man who wants the daughter healed, hold on a minute, and he, he spends time and listens to a woman who had a flow of blood, it says, which would have made her an outcast, unable to enter the temple, ostracized, nobody listens to my story, nobody hears me, I'm just that other person. And Jesus stops, and it says in the book of Mark, it says he listens to her whole story. He made time. Next is two blind men healed, then a demon exercised in a person. I mean, it goes on and on here. Jesus, as we've been talking about all of this uh, work of compassion, He does it in the midst of being immersed in the lives, in particular in the pain of people's lives. And His response is a response of deep-seated compassion, which is the fuel of inclusion. All the episodes we've looked at in Acts, they're all basically remembering Jesus and these very kinds of episodes. And it gives them, and this is a very, this is something we should all be praying for, it gives them, as Jesus imparted it to them, a heightened, we might say, empathic imagination. A heightened, empathic imagination. Wouldn't that be something we all need right now? Is a higher sense of empathic imagination. Michael Joseph Brown in his commentary on Matthew says, the Messiah overcomes the difficulties that often stigmatize our lives. The Messiah practiced inclusion. In the new community created by Jesus, the social boundaries that marked one group as insiders and another as outsiders are redrawn so that we are all insiders. So how did Jesus get there? I'm going to give you three basic things that I think we need, that Jesus had, that enabled him to respond with deep-seated compassion. The first is Jesus had proximity. As I already told you, Jesus immersed himself in the lives of people in pain 
I've just given you a catalog of just chapter 8 and chapter 9 of all the different kinds of people that he was interacting with and healing and listening to and seeing and having them know that they are known, which is incredibly powerful. Show me a person without proximity to pain and I'll show you simplistic and naive and often political responses to them. We saw this playing out this past week. Now, I just want you all to know, this is not a point about donkeys and Republicans, all right? But it is something that happened in the past week that's instructive on this very thing. There was a bill on the Senate floor that had been passed overwhelmingly only a month or so ago for veterans who were suffering from their exposure to burn pits, which is a repudiated practice now, but one that many armies, including ours, use on the field of battle to, to burn refuse with all sorts of toxins that come with that. And now we have all sorts of veterans in their 30s and 40s who were dying of cancer because of this. And so it was supposed to be a slam dunk. But lo and behold, an entire group of senators changed their mind. And I don't know if you saw the John Stewart videos that were all over the place about this, but John Stewart was incensed. Why was he angry? Because he lives in proximity to the pain. He has walked with these veterans. He has listened to their stories. He has immersed himself over the past few years in what their challenges are. And he has decided to use his power and privilege to highlight and lift up and center their voices. And so he's ticked because he had proximity. And in fact, he said things like, you sit over there in your air-conditioned buildings and we're out here outside sweating. And without the proximity to the pain, he was essentially saying, you dehumanize people. They become a way of making a political point, which one of the sinners from Pennsylvania actually said the quiet part out loud and said, we can't give this president another win like that infuriating, but it's how we act. It's what human beings do. Again, I'm not just trying to throw donkeys and Republicans or donkeys and elephants under the bus. I'm just saying, look, friends, this is how human beings respond. This is what we do. This is what I do. If I don't have proximity to it, I will, not, I will be naive about the solutions. Because at the heart of it is, I don't want to disrupt the status quo. Because when you disrupt the status quo, you know what happens? You get in trouble. You get in good trouble, as John Lewis called it, but trouble nonetheless, just as Jesus did. When you disconnect from real people, you dehumanize them. Brian Stevenson, in his uh, book, Just Mercy, says, you cannot be an effective problem solver from a distance. There are details and nuances to problems that you will miss unless you're close enough to observe those details. And this is the sentence I want you to look at on the screen and read over and over to yourself. If you're willing to get closer to people who are suffering, you will find the power to change the world. You want to change the world? You want to make a difference in your lifetime? It's going to involve getting closer, not further away from people who are suffering. Because in that solidarity is actually when it's found the power and the guts and the courage to do it. And to stand against, perhaps, your entire family system. To stand against or, or, or to experience rejection from those close to you. Because that is what is required. When you stand with people who are being targeted 
And this is what's going on here. Jesus calls them harassed and helpless. The word harassed, another word could be oppressed. Helpless actually technically can be those thrown on the ground. So you get the idea. People who have been oppressed, people are being thrown away. Maybe attempted to be erased. Our siblings in the trans community can totally connect with this. Because that's actually what's happening in many states. A denial of the very existence that they inhabit. And we know when we deny someone's existence, we get stats like one in five trans people take their own life. LGBTQ folks, people of color, anybody who doesn't fit the norm, maybe neurodivergent folks, being targeted. And when you stand, when you make the decision to stand with a group, to say, I will stand alongside you, I will listen to your story, I will walk with you, I will help you be understood, I will center your voice when you do that, it's going to get you into trouble. You're also mimicking Jesus, but it's going to get you into trouble. (laughs) Those go together, but it's good trouble. Get proximate to pain, Jesus is saying, to have a chance to exercise compassion and not just be reactive. That's the first thing. Second thing Jesus had was sophistication. Some of you are going to go, I don't think this is very sophisticated. Hear me out. Because Jesus was saying is, there's more going on here in all of these stories than meets the eye. Something that the New Testament and other places will call principalities and powers. What Jesus calls here, unclean spirits. Somebody says, sophisticated? How quaint. (laughs) That's sophisticated to believe in such things? And the answer is, Jesus certainly did. I don't have a great explanation for all of it, but I can tell you that Jesus, everywhere he went, was casting out unclean spirits. It was a way for him to say, look, there's more going on here than meets the eye. There's more going on here than we actually are experiencing just by our observation. Jesus called out this reality all the time. I hope this isn't giving you PTSD right now from some of your backgrounds because what I'm trying to talk about is not unclean spirits like I'm about to levitate or, you know, do all sorts of spectacular things. Oh, it's very subtle. It's insidiously acceptable how unclean spirits operate. I don't have a sophisticated demonology completely worked out, but I can tell you, after traversing the spiritual landscape for 32 years with people from all backgrounds, there's more going on here than meets the eye. I can tell you that I know I have been in the presence of otherworldly evil. And I don't have to explain it. It's a mystery, but it's a reality. There's more going on than meets the eye. And normally what I would say is, look for the places you feel powerless. I go back to thinking about how the Apostle Paul described his own spirituality. He said in Romans chapter 7 the following. He said, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Raise your hand if you identify with that. You all should have your hands raised, but I'm not going to shame you. Because <laughs> that's the human condition. We find ourselves in that kind of cycle more often than we wish. We get really angry with somebody pulling out in front of us, and then what do we do? We go pull out in front of somebody, and it's okay because it's us. After all, I'm in a hurry. And they didn't have to slow down that much. But seriously, look for those ways in which you feel powerless. There are factors and dynamics and pathologies that we feel powerless over. Let's just name one. Let me just name one. Greed. Nobody wants me to talk about greed. I mean, in the, in, in the individual, sure. Go ahead and challenge me, Fred, not to be greedy. But do you realize we are literally caught up in a system where unless we do a lot of work, we're going to be buying clothes and shoes we don't really need that are made by enslaved people on the other side of the world. That is unclean spirits at work because they're always at work within systems. So if you need another name for ha- perhaps for systemic, systemic injustice, unclean spirits is not outside the realm, the realm of, of uh, possibility, of likelihood, actually. All injustice, all injustice is driven by an unclean spirit. I want you just to think about that. Nadia Bowles-Weber said it this way, do, you actually, do we actually believe that there isn't an evil that still permeates a society whose wealth and power came from the genocide of native people and the enslavement of African people just for the benefit of European people? Like, spiritually, that kind of evil just goes away in a generation or two? Friends, it is an unclean spirit that allows for the criminalization of skin color, and this demon of white supremacy tries to bind me from all the ways my life is made easier by accident of birth. That's the systemic, insidious nature. And the truth is, the evil spirit that protects me every single day is the same one that allows for Philando Castile. Sadly, that's a few years ago. Just fill in the blank with any number of ones from the contemporary moment. To be shot dead for nothing more than driving while black and further to be no legal ramifications for the man who shot him dead. And for this, I feel such powerlessness and shame. And I have no idea where the healing starts. There's more going on than meets the eye. And what you have with Jesus is you don't have a person that has a whole lot of knee-jerk reactions. You have a person who has a whole lot of loving responses. Do you want to be the kind of person who goes through life knee-jerk reacting to everything or lovingly responding to things? And the reason I think Jesus could do this is because he knew. He knew that every situation, every person, every system is complicated, has many layers, and it's going to take time and listening and patience and willingness to apologize, to say, I'm going to do better, to continue the process of working on yourself as you look for ways to see justice embodied in this lifetime with compassion. Lastly, Jesus had proximity. Jesus had sophistication. And then lastly, Jesus had 
empathy. Jesus didn't blame. He didn't lead with blame. He seemed completely uninterested in it when encountering a person in pain. You know, this past week, my wife and I were watching the local news. Anybody watch local news? We have kind of fallen in love again with local news because national news is just too dang overwhelming. But yeah, let's talk about, you know, things here. And so we're watching the local news just a few nights ago, and there's a man in Daly City who came home from work at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And he steps outside of his truck. Apparently he's a painter or some kind of construction worker. Steps outside of his truck, and a car pulls up, and a man gets out of the car and just beats him. And it's all on video. His wife videotaped it. She was like running for her life and videotaping it at the same time. It's all right there. They wanted his watch. They were willing to beat this man into a, within an inch of his life to get his timepiece. And they got it, and they sped away. Awful. Then they, inter- then they interviewed somebody who lives on the block. And do you know what this person said? You know, he just needs to be more aware of his surroundings so this doesn't happen in the first place. I wanted to pick up the television and throw it out the window. But that's an e-jerk reaction, so I didn't do it. <laughs> I prayed. No, I was ticked. This is what we do. She was blaming him for her own anxiety to go down. You know that's what was going on? That's what we do. We blame and we scapegoat others because we need our anxiety to go down. Surely this won't happen to me if I am aware of my surroundings. We go to blame just like that. Want to be an agent of healing in this world? Listen, only a few chapters earlier, Jesus in Matthew 7 took judgment out of our toolbox, basically. Of all the instruments you want to use to bring about healing in this world, Jesus takes away the bludgeon of judgment. Because that's what it is. It's a bludgeon. It only breaks things and tears things up. It's not a surgical instrument that's needed for the sophistication, the complication of the human soul and the human condition. Jesus gives his disciples the instrument of compassion. The instrument of listening. Compassion. Arising from empathy. Arising from sophisticated proximity. That's what Jesus gave them. Not, hey, you know, you need to get it together. Or, you know, try harder. Or, you know, you just don't really care. None of that is healing. Now, let me, get you, let me tell you something. Some of you were raised in situations where people came to you with that kind of idea, and they shamed you, and they told you it was tough love. And if I was a cussing pastor, I'd say something right now about that. But I'm not. Because that's a great way to change behavior, but it doesn't bring about healing. 
Behavior modification, kind of easy. Actual transformation, where you become a person of greater love, depth, mercy, grace, sympathy, empathy, with an empathic imagination that heals the world. It's going to be with words of patient, loving compassion. And I want you to know Jesus comes to you in that way. Whatever your struggle is right now, what is your struggle with today? What is your unclean spirit? Maybe it's something you know to be true. You've never admitted to anybody else. I don't know. Maybe it's sex addiction. Maybe it's alcoholism. Maybe it's a, a, a boiling racism that you know is right there under the surface. Maybe it's, it's uh, any number of ways in which you just can't seem to get over your own self-loathing. I don't know. What is it that you're powerless over? Your healing journey may require all sorts of things like a therapist or medication or doing deep interior work. I don't know what it will require. could require all of that. But the main thing I want you to hear is that Jesus sees that struggle, sees that pain, sees that hurt, and comes to you with compassion. Sees the sleepless nights, sees the tears going down your face, sees the struggle that only you know about, that you've been contemplating finally talking to someone about. Sees it feels it, knows it, stands in solidarity with it, cries with you just as he cried at the tomb of Lazarus. If you can begin to believe that, maybe this is the part of a new way for you to conceive of Jesus altogether. But hear him say today that you are not your struggle. You are the beautiful and beloved child of God who's had all sorts of things happen to you and you've been a part of all sorts of things that you wish you weren't. And Jesus says, I know, I know. I see it. It's awful. I'm here for it. I'm here to walk with you in it. There's one final quote, but I'm only going to read the first sentence of it from Debbie Thomas. She says this, To make God believable here and now is to stand in the hot white center of the world's pain. Now just focus on that. Right now in North America, people are leaving the church in droves. All of the data tells us that we actually should be concerned about not the size of the church in a generation or two, but the existence of the church in a generation or two. And you know what it is? They're leaving in droves because they see no compassion. Compassion, as Debbie Thomas says, is part of what makes God believable. It's countercultural. And when it happens, people go, wait a second, now this is a different way of being in the world. It's the only thing that makes God believable. So this morning, I want you to know Jesus sees you. Jesus knows you. And Jesus comes to you not with judgment, but with compassion.
And his compassion involves truth. And that may feel like judgment, but it might just be an uncomfortable thing you need to hear so that you can start on a new healing journey. But nonetheless, he stands ready to be the shepherd leadership of your life that we also desperately need. Let us pray. Gracious God, help us. Help us this morning to follow our Savior who leads with love and is committed to the liberation of all. Who put his money where his mouth is and went to the cross and recycled the violence of this world into forgiveness and mercy. And who invites us today to walk with him, to change the world with divine compassion. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Drive out the unclean spirits that drive our lives. And give us faith to believe that as we do little things with great love, that we live out and walk, as St. Francis said, the pardon of God in the midst of this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.